Hello, this is Pastor Timothy Yam. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm currently looking for a church to pastor, and if you do know of a vacancy, please let me know by sending me an email, pastortimothyyap at hotmail.com. This is pastortimothyyap at hotmail.com. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word tells us that the unfolding of your word gives light, that it gives understanding to the simple. So, Father, as we come to your holy word right now to listen again to what you have to say to us, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit may open us again to your word, to your light, that you will give us understanding as we study this book of Daniel. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have this morning to be able to open up your word, to be able to understand again what you have to say to us. So Lord God, we pray that you'll use these moments, use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. We often hear about how the Reformation came to Germany when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of Castle Church in 1517. But do you know how the Reformation came to Switzerland? Well, it came through a sausage sizzle. A sausage sizzle, you may ask. Well, it was the year 1522. In the city of Zurich in Switzerland, there was a man, a man known as Christopher Froschauer. Christopher Froschau was very much influenced at the time by the teachings of Martin Luther. He was so enthralled by the teachings of Luther that he decided to uh, print for uh, the people of Switzerland a new edition of all of Paul's letters. And as a way to celebrate the release of this new edition of Paul's letters, uh, Froschau threw a sausage sizzle for the entire city. Ulrich Zwingli was the priest of the city at the time, and he was invited. The sausage sizzle happened to happen on a Friday during the season of Lent. According to the traditions of the church then, you can't eat meat uh, on a Friday in the season of Lent. So what was Ulrich Zwingli to do? He was, after all, the priest of the city. Should he stop the sausage sizzle and let everyone be sent home hungry? Or should he just simply join in the sausage sizzle? Well, uh, Ulrich Zwingli knew that it was more than just a sausage sizzle. He knew that this was going to be the turning point in the life of the church. Will they, as Christians, be fed? by the traditions of the church, or will they, from that point on, be fed by the very words of God? Who will they choose? Will they choose to be fed by what the church tells them, or will they choose to just follow the very words of God? Zwingli made a decision there and then that they would rather be fed by the word of God. So not only did he join in the sausage sizzle, but legend has it that Zwingli himself even handed out the sausages and served the sausages to the people in the city. After the sausage sizzle, 
Zwingli stepped up and he preached. He preached about Lent and that eating of meat during Lent was not mentioned in the Bible. And he told his beloved city that from that day on, they would rather be fed, not by the traditions of the church, but they will only be fed by the very word of God. And because of this sausage sizzle, the Reformation came to Switzerland and it transformed the entire land. My question to us this morning is this, who feeds you? When you are at the crossroads of life, when you do not know what your future looks like, when you're looking for advice, when you're looking for comfort, when you're looking for direction, who feeds your soul and gives you courage for tomorrow? When you are lonely, who feeds your hungry, craving soul for joy and companionship? Is it pornography that feeds you? Your friends? Or will you make the decision like Zwingli did and be fed solely by the Word of God? Who feeds you? Who feeds us? This is the question that Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 is trying to address and we're looking at this morning. As we begin this new series of sermons on the book of Daniel, this is the pressing question that the first five verses of chapter 1 tries to address. Who feeds you? So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. So if your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Let, and if you have your Bibles on your phone, please turn on your phones as we read verse 1 of chapter 1 of Daniel. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This verse, in fact, situates Daniel towards the end of the Old Testament. The, the book of Daniel is situated towards the end of the Old Testament and around the year of 605 BC, when the Babylonians were at the height of their power and the Babylonians were besieging. The, the book of Daniel begins with this picture of the Babylonians besieging the city of Jerusalem and they chose a group of men, and they took these group of men to Babylon to serve the king of Babylon, known as Nebuchadnezzar at this time. And one of the people taken by Nebuchadnezzar was Daniel, together with his friends. But the Bible tells us in verse 2 that despite the Babylonians having power, it is God who is still sovereign. It's God who is still in control. So look with me at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with the articles from the temple of God. Though it's interesting that the, Ju the Judeans were brought into exile, but the Bible tells us it was God who delivered the king of uh, Jerusalem, uh, the king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. It was God who was still in control. But it's very interesting that God not only went with these men into exile, but the Bible tells us here in verse 2 that in along um, with God and with the people that were being brought into exile into Babylon were some articles from the temple of God. The Hebrew word for articles here is kali, which means pots and pans and 
uh, uh, cups and utensils used by God and the priest in the temple. It's very interesting that when the men were being brought, some of these men from Judah were being brought to Jerusalem, from, to Babylon, not only did God go with them, but God brought his articles, his kali, his kitchen utensils with him. My goodness, why did God pack his kitchen supplies to bring to Babylon? Imagine if you were to force to live in a place far away and you can only bring one item with you. What would you bring? For many of us, we need to bring our phones. I remember somebody just talking to me and asking me for a telephone of this person and that person. I said to this person, I don't know anybody's telephone. I can never even remember my own telephone number because we are so dependent upon our phones. Everything is stored in our phones. So for many of us, we will bring our phones. We were forced to go away to a place far away and we can bring one item. But here God is preparing to go with Daniel and his friends to Babylon and God brings just one item too. God brings his Kali, the articles of the temple or his kitchen supplies to Babylon. Why? Because God is the ultimate master chef. He wants to continue to feed his people even in exile in Babylon. Because if he does not feed us, the Babylonians, the world will feed us. And this is what the next few verses are about. As Daniel and his friends were being brought to Babylon, the king Nebuchadnezzar tries to feed them. And the world tries to feed us today with its messages too. What is the world trying to teach us today? What's the world trying to feed us, to feed our souls? There are two things that Nebuchadnezzar tries to feed Daniel and his friends as they were being brought to Babylon. Number one, the world and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is trying to teach us is your value is measured by your looks, your health, and your intellect. Your value is measured by your looks, your health, and your intellect. As these Judeans were being brought to Babylon, the king sent his chief eunuch by the name of Ashpenaz to choose choice men from, the, uh, from, from the, the kingdom of Judah to eat with the king at the king's table. So who did the chief eunuch choose? Let's look at verse 4. He chose young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for all kinds of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. To the Babylonians, our worth, the worth of those who are worthy are measured by our youth, our looks, and our minds. Isn't this the world, isn't this the message that the world is trying to feed us today too? How times have not changed, have they? This is the message that the world is trying to feed us you are only worthy to have this job if you are under 40 years old. You are only loved as long as you take young and slim. And this is what our ads on television is trying to teach us every day. Recently, you may have uh, came across an app known as Space App, where you can uh, actually upload your photo onto this app on your phone. And it will show you what you will look like in 20 years, 30 years time. 
And within a week after this app was launched, there were already 80 million, 80 million active users. Though many people are horrified by old age in our culture, there is still this fascination over what we will look like in 30 years, 40 years time. Why? Because our culture, as well as in the culture of the Babylonians, we value outward appearance. We value youth. We value outward appearance so much that our entire value system is tied around it. But this is not the message that God feeds His people. This is not the message that God feeds His people. Our worth, according to the book of Daniel, is not measured by our youthfulness or our, vital, our physical vitality. How do I know that? Later in the book of Daniel, God is not going to be like King Nebuchadnezzar who only just uses and chooses the young and the fit to be to eat at his table. No, God is going to choose someone like Daniel who is going to serve to God even in his old age. In Daniel chapter 6, for instance, we are told that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of his prayers to God. And God intervened in a very miraculous way by saving Daniel, by shutting up the mouths of the lions. May I ask you, how old was Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? Many of our Sunday school artwork often depict Daniel in the lion's den as this young, fit, um, young man uh, facing the lions. If you actually read Daniel's book, carefully, especially chapter 6 verse 1. It tells us that the whole narrative about what of this story actually happens when? During the reign of Darius. Darius started to reign 66 years after Daniel came into Babylon. The so 66 years after chapter 1, chapter 6 happened. Let's say if Daniel was just 20 years old when he entered Babylon. Let's do some maths here. 66 years after that, Daniel would be 86 years old. This was not just a young, scrawny, fit, trimmed man thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel, when he was thrown into the lion's den, was already at least 86 years old. Perhaps he already had white hair and had a walking stick and could only walk in the wobbly fashion. And yet when he was thrown into the lion's den, God's hand was still upon him. Because the lion's den not even touched Daniel. The hungry lions could not even touch Daniel. Because the word of God tells us that God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. What is God trying to show us? Even a man who's 86 years old is still loved by God. And God can still use not only just the young, but he uses people of all ages. Why? 
because it's not the value of who we are is does not lie in ourselves does not lie in our youth does not lie in our physical appearance does not lie in our attitude for learning but our worth lies in the very fact that God is with us he cares for us his son died for us and that he redeemed us the world today still tries to teach us the very same message that the Babylonians were trying to impose upon Daniel and his friends. Only the young, only the ones that are fit physically, only those who are high intellectual abilities are valued. But God says, no, your value does not depend upon yourself. I can use an 86-year-old man as powerful as I want. I can save an 86-year-old man out of the lion's den as much as I can save a 20-year-old because the value of life does not lie in our age or our physical appearance or in us in any way. But our value lies in the very fact that God cares and protects His children. Who feeds your soul? Is it God or is it the world? David Jeremiah, in his book, uh, in his brand new book, Overcomer, tells a story about a young mother who rushed to the pharmacy one evening just when her baby was sleeping. So she had just a few minutes just to get some medicine for herself and, uh, uh, while the baby was sleeping. And as she was at the pharmacy in her rush, she found out that she had locked the car keys in the car. And as she was standing there panicking, because the keys were in the car. What was she going to do? Her baby was sleeping. She had to get home ASAP. Just then a man walked past and saw her predicament. He offered to help. He took a little clothes hanger and within a few minutes, the car was unlocked. The young mother was so grateful. So she kept saying to the man, thank you kind sir for your help. You are such a good man. The man looked at this young mother and just smirked. And he smiled and said, Don't call me good. I was a robber, a first-class thief. I just came out of prison. I'm no good. As the man walked away, the young mother offered a prayer up to God. And she said, God, thank you. Thank you for sending a professional to help me out during this time. God values and uses people, even a professional ex-convict, to help this young lady, even in a time of the most desperate times. Why? Because our value does not reside in our past, our value in life does not reside upon who we are, but the very fact that God loves and cares for us. Secondly, the second message that the world tries to impress upon us and tries to feed upon us is this. We have the answers if we try harder. We will have the answers if we try harder. Ashpenaz, the Shiva eunuch, was not only trying to get a group of young, good-looking and smart Hebrew men to serve, but his, his responsibility was also to teach this group of young men. What was he supposed to teach them? 
we read in verse 4. He was to teach them the language. Most likely, the language referred here is Akkadian. He was to teach them the language and the literature, or literally from the Hebrew, uh, the Sapar, the book of the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends were required to know the book of the Babylonians. In the light of chapter 2, it is very possible that Daniel and his friends were being trained to be diviners. That is, they were trained to interpret dreams and the wills of the gods. So this book that the, uh, uh, that's being mentioned here most likely refers to some kind of training manual to know the wills of the gods. So what this uh, uh, is trying to teach us here is that Ashpenast, the chief eunuch, was trying to impress upon Daniel that if you want to know the wills of the gods, what you need to do is to try harder, learn harder, do your best to learn the book. You remember in Ezekiel chapter 21 verse 21, it tells of the king of Babylon who came to the fork of the road and he was not sure which direction to proceed. So what did he do during this time when he was uh, faced with indecision? He began to cast lots by the arrows, by shooting arrows. And then what did he do next? He took out an animal and he cut open the animal, took out the liver and began studying the liver. So what he was trying to do was that he was trying to study the liver. And if he tried harder, if he could discern what the liver looked like, he could discern the will of God. If you go to the British Museum today, you can even see a clay tablet shaped in the form of a liver that came during this time of, uh, of Daniel. It was simply used by the diviners in order to tell and to discern the wills of the God just by examining a piece of the animal liver to see what it looked like. So what the Babylonians were trying to impress upon Daniel is that if you want to know more about God, the gods, you need to try harder. You need to learn all of these things. But despite all of this training, none of the diviners actually knew much. Because in the next chapter, when they were asked to interpret the king's dream, none of them knew how to interpret or what even the dream was. And one of the diviners or the astrologers said it really right. Why couldn't they do it? Daniel chapter 2 verse 11. When the king asks, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This diviner is bang on right. The world tries to tell us, if you want to know what God's will is, if you're in a difficult situation, you're crossroads of life, just try harder, pray more. But this diviner is right. No one can know the will of God, of the gods, unless God reveals it to them. And these gods do not live among human beings. But when Daniel came to interpret the king's dream, he could do it. Why could he do it? Daniel chapter 5 verse 14 tells us, because the spirit of God lives in him. The world tries to tell us that in order to know God, to know what God's will is, just try harder, do more. But the message that Daniel and God is trying to impress upon us is no. If you want to know God's Spirit, trust in 
the power of the Holy Spirit. Unless the gods live among us, unless the Holy Spirit lives in us, we will never be able to know and understand what God's will is. Are you at the crossroads of your life where you need godly wisdom? It's not by trying harder and doing more. That's not how it is. What we need to do is to surrender to Jesus. The gospel is not about doing more good works to please God. But the gospel is about surrender to Jesus. And let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to reveal to us. The reason why the diviners could not know and discern the wills of the gods was because they thought it was through their own brute strength they could figure out the wills of the gods. But Daniel challenges us, that's not. Daniel could interpret the dream because the Spirit of God was in him. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us. Many a times throughout ministry, we always try to do things by our own strength. If you do things by your own strength, you only get what humans can accomplish. But if you do things God's way, you get what God can accomplish. And there are many times we fail to depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, to surrender to His will, to His sovereignty, not just look at human means, but look at what the Spirit wants. Let the Spirit work in our hearts to lead, to guide us to what He wants. Let Him take full control. That's what the Gospel is. That it is God who takes control, who is the Lord of Allah. It is the one He that saves us, not us ourselves. We need to surrender in faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. In our English Bible, the book of Daniel is buried somewhere in the second half of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, which is the original text, the book of Daniel is one of the last few books in the Hebrew Bible. It's placed towards the end of the Hebrew Bible for a reason. The book of Genesis begins with God, the master chef, preparing a feast in the garden for Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve refused to eat what God had prepared for them, and they chose to eat what Satan, what the snake had for them. And because of that, they broke God's heart into a million pieces. Now we come to the end of the Hebrew Bible, and God again brings his pots and pants to Babylon to cook for Daniel and his friends, where God will set up a table for Daniel and his friends, while King Nebuchadnezzar sets up his table for Daniel and his friends too. And the decision time comes. Adam and Eve once chose not to eat at God's table. What will Daniel and his friends do? We will find out next week. But I want to ask you this question. What will you do? Will you choose to be fed by what God says? Or what the world says. Who will feed your soul? In my previous church, one of our young adults invited a friend to church. This young man that came to church, was his name was Atta. Atta was a foreign student from Iraq. 
he came from a very staunch Muslim family. He came to our church a few times. And one Sunday after church, Atta came up to me and said to me, Priest, that's what he used to call me, a priest. <laughs> um, I would like to talk to you privately. Can I come to church this evening to just talk to you? And I said, of course, of course you can. So I thought to myself, Arta has heard the gospel perhaps, and now he's getting defensive. That was what I was saying to myself. So he's coming this evening to debate with me about Islam and Christianity. After all, he was from a staunch Islamic family. So between the end of the worship service until 6 p.m. that evening, I spent all my time preparing for my ammunition. I was thinking about all the possible questions and debates that he would bring up uh, for, against Christianity from the Islamic point of view. I was trying to answer, or trying to get answers for, 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 to, to, to answer him back. So I was just preparing. And 6 p.m. came. I was ready to do battle with Arthur. Arthur came and he just sat there in the church very simply and quietly and he says, Priest, can you explain to me again the message of Christianity? So I did. I clearly, slowly explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ to Arthur. And after I finished explaining, I paused and I asked, do you have any questions? I was waiting for Atta to fire all his questions and start debating with me. But he was just quiet. He just sat there, soberly quiet. And then he murmured, no, I don't have any questions. Was then I asked him, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And Arthur just nodded his head. No fiery darts, no spears thrown at me. That night the Holy Spirit convicted Arthur and led him to faith. But when I came to church that evening, I wanted to spread the gospel by my own strength. But God convicted me. That's not by might, nor by your own strength, that you can preach the word of God to this young man. Let my Holy Spirit work and use the gospel, the preaching of the word, to soften this young man's heart. Stop feeding him yourself. Let me feed him myself. And that night, God really convicted me that the Holy Spirit is at work. He's powerful. He works in people's lives in ways we cannot imagine. But many times we ignore Him. We'd rather cook for ourselves and feed ourselves by our own strength. We'll try harder and harder. We refuse to surrender to the Spirit. Let God feed us. Let's surrender to the Savior of this world. Let the Holy Spirit work. Father, we come before you this morning to pray and thank you that you have revealed your work to us. We thank you that 
you still feed our souls. You still speak to us. You still cook for us. That even when we're in exile, when we're far away, when we feel like we're isolated, you still take your kali and cook for us. So Father, with times we do not depend upon you, we think we can do it by our own strength. We try harder. We need to do it by ourselves. But it takes humility. It takes your Holy Spirit to break us down and say, Father, feed us. Father, so many times when we are scared, we are lonely, we are anxious, we let the world feed us with its lies. How many times have we believed in a lie that we're only valuable because we look this way, because we have this job, because we have this kind of health. But Father, our value depends not on ourselves, but on the very fact that Jesus cared enough to die for us. So Father, as we come before you, we again surrender to you. We surrender our tomorrows, our future, into your hands. Lord, we look to the Holy Spirit to work as we surrender again to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Master. In His name we pray. Amen.